morning. Uh, if you are a six-year-old participating in the CLK program, you may be dismissed. You can exit this way. We'll give them just a moment to exit. Thank you for joining us this morning uh, for our gathering. We will continue our worship now through the preaching of God's word and uh, submitting to it. So as we do that, let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, our God, we need to incline our ears to your word today. We need to listen to what you said to your people so long ago. We need to remember. We need to remember what you have done. We need to remember your works. We need to remember your grace and your mercy and your kindness. For they are good for us. They are for our good, even when all our circumstances would tell us, don't trust the Lord. God, we need to remember to trust you. For you have proven that you are able to deliver. You have proven you are able to supply and meet all of our needs. And so as we open your word to see how you've done that, and to see how we ought to respond to you. Would you give us the grace by your spirit to hear and to understand clearly so that we might walk in obedience to your ways all the days of our life? We need your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> as I said, we'll continue worshiping the Lord this morning as we hear his word preached. And so if you haven't had the opportunity to, uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, Genesis, and then Exodus. And we will be in chapter 15 this morning, beginning in verse 22. Uh, if you would like to use a copy of God's Word from the pew back in front of you, I'll be preaching from the English Standard Version. And uh, if you're looking for chapter 15, those are the large black numbers. And the verses are the smaller black numbers uh, along the sentences. And so we'll be uh, starting in verse 22. And if you need some help finding that, don't hesitate to ask around. Someone near you can help you locate that section of Scripture. We're going to be in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 this morning. And uh, there are three stories we're going to consider. There's a fourth story in this grouping that we'll talk about next week that we'll preach from. And so I encourage you to return and uh, take a look with us at Exodus 17 next week. But uh, from Exodus 15 through 17, we'll look at three stories that are referenced all over the Bible, uh, and we're going to try to gain an understanding of their meaning and why they are important for us. Uh, and the reason the Bible quotes these and references these stories over and over and over again uh, is that it was really the same reason that we're preaching it. Uh, this book, these stories show us how God delivers his people and helps us to know what God expects from us in response to his grace. Now, these three stories we're going to take a look at this morning all have a few things in common. First, when God's people faced a serious need, they grumbled to Moses instead of crying out to the Lord. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the Lord hears their grumbling and supernaturally provides for them. And the third is that the Lord is using these trials, these experiences of the people of Exodus in, or the people of Israel in the wilderness to teach his people to trust him. These stories are given to us for a specific reason. I'd remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, who's, who said that they were written down for our instruction, 
that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul said, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So, together, let's take heed. Now, some brief context. Where are we? Where are we in Exodus? Well, these stories immediately follow God's victory over the Egyptians at the Red Sea. The Lord has led Israel to miraculously cross the sea on dry land and has destroyed the armed forces of Israel's captors. It was an unmitigated victory showcasing God's power over everything, including even the mighty waters. Israel has just experienced a series of unparalleled events in the Exodus. They've seen the 10 plagues. They've seen God lead them in a pillar of fire and a cloud that is their GPS and giant sun-shielding umbrella for them and parted waters. God has even parted the waters. These things should leave them with no reason to believe that God cannot do whatever it is that he pleases. Now, in the first and the third stories that we're going to ex uh, examine this morning, the people find no water to drink. In the second story, the people have no bread or meat to eat. And in each of these stories, as I've said, they grumble. That's their refrain. That is their default, even to the point of blasphemy. It's disturbing to read these people do that, even after they'd seen God's hand at work and providing them with so much. But at the, in the midst of their grumbling, we also see the Lord's purpose and compassion for them, which gives us hope. So let's look at the first story. We'll do this quickly. This is sort of a longer passage, so we're going to try and get through it uh, in a reasonable amount of time. The first story is Exodus 15, 22 through 27. You just heard Christina read it. The people are instructed by Moses to leave the sea. So they've, they've sung their song of victory. They've been at the sea. They've rejoiced in what God has done. And now they're leaving. And they're headed to the wilderness of Shur. And when they arrive at Marah, they find that the water is bitter. It's so bitter that they named the place after the bitterness of the water, which is why they called it Marah. And the people grumble. And they say, what shall we drink? They grumble to Moses. And so Moses cries out to the Lord. And God made a way for the water to be sweet by instructing Moses to take a log and to throw it into the water in order to sweeten it. Now, whether this log had natural purposes or natural capabilities that allowed it to sweeten the water and God just revealed that to Moses and he didn't know, that isn't nearly as important as the fact that it's the Lord that provided the water for his people to drink. And there he also provided a statute for them or a law and he tested them by it. Verse 26, it says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then the people came to Elam and camped there, having found 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Twelve springs of water, probably representative of a spring for each of the tribes of Israel. Seventy palm trees intended to provide them with some level of shade in the heat of the wilderness. This passage is important. This brief section, this encounter, where they find bitter water and the, they grumble to the Lord and the Lord provides and gives them a law. And then they rest at Elam. This passage is important because it sets that rhythm. sets the rhythm for how Israel must act as God's people. And it's not just a rhythm for the Israelites, it's a rhythm for all of us. And so here it is. Here's the rhythm. It'll be on the screen uh, in relation to Exodus 15. They have no water, and so there's no rest. Then Moses cries to the Lord, which is what all the people should have done, which is their request to God. Then the Lord provides 
in his grace. He gives them sweet water to drink. Then the Lord speaks to the people and gives them his law. And then they have 12 springs of water that they rest in at Elam. They rest. And so they move from not resting to requesting assistance from the Lord to hearing him offer it to to them in his grace. And then the Lord gives them a statute by which they are to live. And then they rest in God's grace. Now, on their way to Canaan, remember, they're leaving Egypt, and it's not arbitrary. They're going to a specific location. They're on their way to Canaan eventually, and they will need to learn this pattern, that their cry should go to God and that they should obey his law if they are to find rest. And they will find rest in Canaan, physical rest, rest in the land, if they diligently follow God's commands. He will be, as he promised in the text, he will be their healer. Verse 26, if they will listen to him and obey him. Now, Israel is in their infancy as a nation. God's being gracious and generous and compassionate toward them, but he's also being disciplinary. This is like raising a child. What Israel is enduring right now is the, uh, them being raised by their good heavenly father. God leads them through these barren lands for a reason, and the reason is this. They need to learn this. They need to learn it early on as his people. If God is with them, they have everything that they need. If God is with them, they have everything that they need. And the way to enjoy God is through obedience to him. The way to enjoyment is through glad obedience. Another way to put this is simply this. People must fear God. God's people must fear God. Fearing God is gladly and joyfully submitting to his commands and rejecting the temptation that comes from the outside to do otherwise. They are to love God, do what he says, and reject temptation. That's the big idea. That's how they are to live as his people. And God wants their faith in him to run deep. And the depth of Israel's faith will be tied to their obedience in severe difficulty. Deep faith in God will ready them to be a people that honors him in the land of Canaan, a place where the land flourishes, but temptation awaits. It's the new Garden of Eden of sorts, and the people will need to be ready for it. They will need to be ready to trust the Lord in all things. So by, by way of quick application, don't be surprised when you find yourself in that kind of scenario, in a scenario that requires you to trust God out of desperation. It's intended to deepen your faith, Christian, because comfort doesn't produce dependency. Desperation does. Comfort does not produce dependency. Desperation does. So that's the first story. They're beginning to learn this pattern. They're beginning to be tested in the wilderness by God in order to develop a deep faith in him. And the second story is a bit more complex. And it shows that Israel still has some serious growing and maturing to do. And that's to be expected. All of this is new for them. The story begins in chapter 16, verse 1. The people set out from Elim and come to the wilderness of Sin, which is on the way to Sinai. Now, the the geographical name Sin doesn't have anything to do with disobedience to God's commands. Uh, It's just the name of the place. And so there's no theological significance per se to that. They've now been away from Egypt for six to seven weeks. And uh, they begin to grumble again against Moses and Aaron. So what's their complaint this time? They don't have meat. They don't have bread. And they'd rather have died under the hand of God 
with the Egyptians than be where they are right now. That's really something. It's staggering. It's probably blasphemy against God, and it reveals the heart of the people. They don't understand God. They don't understand their deliverance. They don't understand the purpose of the wilderness, and they presume they will die. No cry to God. No plea for help to God. Just bitter grumbling and complaining. It's obvious they have not learned. They apparently don't want God to be their healer. They would have been content dying along with the Egyptians, as if to say, we'll take bread and meat over being God's people. You can kill us, just make sure our stomachs are full first. That'd be fine. That's their attitude. And they're not following in the pattern of dependency upon God when dire need arises. But God, in his mercy, tells Moses and Aaron that he'll provide bread from heaven. And then in verses 11 and 12, he says that he will also provide meat for them. And the bread will come with a test to see if they will honor the Sabbath. So here's another law that the people are to joyfully obey. And it comes with a promise. <clears throat> when the Lord, here's the promise, when the Lord brings the meat in the evening, they will know that God is the one who delivered them from the Egyptians. The food wasn't simply intended to fill their stomachs. It was supposed to be a tattoo of truth on their hearts. And this is the truth. God alone is their Savior. God alone is their Savior. Now, in addition, despite their grumbling to God, he will reveal his glory to them in the morning. So they're going to know in the evening that the Lord is their Savior, and in the morning when they wake up, they're going to see his glory. What a sight. God has shown his power. He's defeated their enemies. He's given them water. He's promised them food. He's leading them to their land. And now they're going to see his glory. Israel is getting what they don't deserve. Food in their stomachs and food for their souls. Grumbling against God doesn't produce this. What produces this is God's mercy and kindness to stir their love for him and cause them to remember what it is that he has done. So let's now take a look at verses 14 through 21 of Exodus 16. This is the bread God provided to the people. The text says in verse 14, And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let... No one leave any of it over till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now, the name of this bread is manna. You've heard that before. You've heard the Sunday school lessons about that growing up as a kid. We learn of this name in verse 31, and the word manna sounds similar to the question that's asked in verse 15 in the original Hebrew. The question translated to English is, what is it? And if you were to say that in the Hebrew, which I will not attempt to do today, 
uh, it would sound a lot like you saying manna. And so they named the, it similar to that. And so it may be where the name of the bread comes from. Uh, this manna is God's gift to the people, and it comes with a stipulation. Here's the stipulation. Again, it's a test from the Lord. Gather only what each one of you can eat. In other words, don't hoard the bread. This is not the first time that God has given food to his people, and it come with a stipulation. And this is good food. This also isn't the first time God's given good food in bounty to his people. But it's also not the first time that God's people disobeyed his word when he's given instructions about the food. This should start to ring some bells in you about where the Lord has done this before. Sinning against God's good pleasure in this way has produced horrific results in the past. In the garden, it led to the fall of the human race. We can't afford to forget what happened there. We can't afford to count the overwhelming cost of disobedience to the Lord. When he gives you a command, you are to obey it. And the cost of not obeying it is disastrous. Now, what's the cost of the disobedience here? The text says that anything that was hoarded and left over would breed worms and it would stink. It had a stench about it. You've probably uh, smelled a similar stench before when you opened a trash can that's needed to be emptied for too long and it's bred worms in it and it stinks. Nobody likes to admit that that's ever happened, but you've probably seen it happen and it smells terrible. Well, this stench is uh, intended to remind them of the disobedience and the costs of it. That stench, when you feel that stench over sin in your heart, when you smell the stench with the, the nostrils of your soul, as it were, it's conviction of sin. You felt that nastiness before. But that stench is also a grace to remind us that we haven't graduated from dependency, and we never will. We need that stench to remind us of our great need for Christ and his grace to redeem every aspect of our lives. Our sins for the Christian in Christ are forgiven, and his grace paves the way for us to move further and further from disobedience to God. So when you smell that stench in your heart, when you smell the result of your disobedience, it's actually a grace from the Lord to move you away from the sin and toward the grace of God. Now, for the non-Christian, maybe you're here and you're saying, I hear what you're saying, sir, but I just don't believe the Bible. I don't believe. If you're, if you're feeling that weight right now, a little bit of the stench of sin, you're starting to see, okay, God takes sin seriously. There's a significant punishment that comes from that. Keep listening. Keep listening. That stench is a warning side to you that God's judgment is coming for sin. And so if you're smelling that spiritual stench, hang in there. I'm going to show you how God takes it away by tying this reality to some New Testament truths from the gospel in just a moment. We're going to get there. Now, this manna that is provided for them, back to the manna, this shows them what they really should be hungry for, which is more of God. He's providing it daily. The manna comes every morning. And it's apparently a never-ending supply under God's providence. So Israel's in this perpetual state of dependency upon God in the wilderness. And the good news is he's able to satisfy them. But they're hungry for the wrong thing. I mean, you heard it in their complaint. They grumbled and said, would that it would be just that we died in Egypt under the hand of God with the Egyptians where we had pots of meat and bread 
That's a fascinating revisionist history that they're uh, bringing about there. That's not what happened. They didn't have it good in Egypt. But God desires to fill their hearts and not just their stomachs. He's testing them so that they would hunger not for food, but for him. Now in John chapter 6, Jesus offers his own test in order to feed the people and show them their greater need. So he's, test, he's testing one of his own disciples. You remember the story, Philip. There's all these people that have gathered to hear Jesus preach, and Philip is there, and Jesus uh, says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now verse 6 of John 6, that was Jesus asking the question. Okay, verse 6 explains, it's not that Jesus didn't know the answer. It says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he was about to do, and he was testing Philip to grow his faith. And this test is how we grow to trust the Lord. Jesus was teaching Philip to follow that pattern God established right after the Red Sea. Remember remember the pattern from earlier? Let's apply it to the feeding of the 5,000 from John chapter 6. It'll be on the screen. So they have no money or not enough to feed these people. So there's the testing. And they're not, gonna, they're not resting because they're hungry. And they have a, a, really a desperate need. And so Jesus blesses the food. He prays to the Father. That's the request. Jesus provides. The text says that Jesus provided and everybody had what they needed. That's the grace of God coming out. And then there's an instruction at the end where Jesus tells his disciples to gather their food. And so that's sort of law. That's a command from Christ. And then uh, the people recognize that Jesus is the prophet come into the world. And he's come into the world to provide true rest. And so we've moved from not having rest to being able to rest in Christ. And it comes by way of asking the Lord for help and depending upon him where God provides, and then we obey his instruction, and we rest in him. That's the pattern. This is the pattern throughout all of Scripture. And it's what Israel needs to learn. It's what we need to learn. So we need to see that the need for bread goes way beyond filling our stomachs. If we look further down in John chapter 6, Jesus says in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man, he's referring to himself there, the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. John 6, 27. Well, what do the people do then? The people demand a sign from Jesus because they had received a sign from God in the form of manna. So they're recalling this story we're looking at this morning from Exodus chapter 16. And they're saying, well, the Lord provided manna in the wilderness for us as a sign. What sign do you provide? You see how these are beginning to tie together a little bit. The people won't stop testing God, either in the Old Testament or in the New. So listen to what Jesus says to them. And this, this is really remarkable, his words. Verse 32, John chapter 6. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. See the transition? My father gives you, present, active, the true bread from heaven. And he's really referencing himself. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Remember the manna came down. He rained manna on them. <clears throat> Verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, here's the reveal. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
And then verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. The manna in the desert ensured the survival of Israel and is a foreshadow of the bread that comes down from heaven to bring life to all men, to satisfy their hunger forever. So I wonder, and the people of Israel were hungering after the wrong kind of food, I wonder if you are. What are you hungry for? Are you asking God for provision for the day and counting upon him for eternal life? That's one of the questions we deal with from this text. Friends, let me encourage you, don't long for just the bread that perishes. Instead, you can believe the promise that whoever comes to Jesus will not hunger, and nor will he thirst. We're not just dealing with bread and meat in the wilderness. We're also dealing with the people who don't have water. Well, now Jesus is addressing that too. They will never thirst. If you read further down in John 6, guess what the people do even after he has said all these promises? all these things about who he is and what he will do as the bread from heaven, and we'll get to how he's the living water in just a second. What do they do? They do the same thing that the people of Israel did. They, and the text even says it, they grumbled in John 6. They grumbled against Jesus. This shows that the condition of the human heart is really bent against God. Even when everything is in front of us, to see how good God is and how pleasing he is and how he provides everything. What we have to have overcome in our lives is the sinfulness that leads to that grumbling. And so let me charge you with this this morning. Don't respond that way. Don't respond in grumbling. These people in John 6, they made the same mistake with Jesus that the Israelites made with the Lord in Exodus. But in the Lord's patience, we are here today. We are here today, and there's an opportunity before you to believe and trust in God's provision through Jesus Christ. It would be a massive mistake to reject what it is that Jesus offers you. He's the bread of life, eternal life. He's the fount of living water. We'll get to more of that in just a moment about who Jesus is. But getting back to Exodus 16, back to the manna. Remember that the manna comes six days a week, but on the seventh, it doesn't. Why? The Lord tells his people. Here comes another test. Verse 22, chapter 16 of Exodus. It says, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. So twice as much as they would have normally gathered on a regular day, on a weekday and Saturday. I'm sorry, on a weekday. So on the sixth day, they gathered two omers each, twice as much as they normally have. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they lay it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So there's the rule. Gather it on six, rest on the seventh. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest for God's people. This is another law by which God would test his people and their obedience 
The Lord provided enough for two days on the sixth day, and Israel was instructed to gather as much, to bake the bread, to boil the quail, and leave the rest for the Sabbath day. This was God's test through a simple command. Now, the testing is to develop people. This is what the testing is all about, to develop people, to ready them, to mature them. And it's really preparing them for the law that's coming. These first five books of the Bible, uh, we think of them historically. We think of them as the development of the people of Israel and their growth as a nation, the movement into Canaan, their wandering in the wilderness and all that. But what it really is about, what's at the center of this, is that it's the giving of the law. It's the giving of the law. And so these tests are readying people here in a couple of chapters, we'll get to it soon, to receive the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments to be offered at Sinai. And this is what's going to be the law for the people. It's going to encompass their entire lives. And as they enter Canaan, they need to be obedient to it in order for the Lord, as we heard in uh, the story from Exodus 15, 22 through 27, for the Lord to be their healer so that they wouldn't experience the diseases that he inflicted upon the Egyptians. So if God's going to be their healer, they need to listen to what he says and do what he says. And here's another example for that. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now, unfortunately, when God tests his people, they often rebel and test him back. This is what normally happens. When people are walking in uh, a lack of humility and reverence before the Lord, when they're not trusting him, if the Lord tests them, they often return a test to him. The difference between God and his people is that the people don't often pass the test. God never fails to pass the test. So here's what uh, it says in verse 27, Exodus 16. This is how the people rebel. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested. They rested on the seventh day. The Lord commanded his people to observe the Sabbath as a day of rest. That's what they should do. They should be observing the commandment of the Sabbath to be observed as a day of rest. And this rest looks back. The Sabbath looks back to the work that the Lord did in creation. You remember on the seventh day, what did he do? God rested. God rested. And in addition to that, it looks forward to the rest that the people will receive in Canaan if they act obediently according to God's law. But the rest that the Sabbath points to isn't just Canaan. It's resting in God. What, what God is teaching these people is not merely to take a break from their labor, but rather to pursue the rest that is in God alone, a rest that we were made for, a rest that reflects, that remembers what God has done, what he has accomplished. It's an invitation for people to desire all of who he is so that all of who he is would pervade all of who they are. Now, the remainder of chapter 16 contains both encouraging and devastating information about manna. Uh, so here's the good stuff. It was like coriander seed. It was similar to a wafer and was sweet as though made with honey. In other words, this was good. The people enjoyed this. But the sad reality we learn here is a preview of the people's punishment for their disobedience. They were banished to wonder for 40 years until they entered the land 
of Canaan. The text shows us that. Uh, it tells us about when they stopped eating the manna, when they entered Canaan after wandering in the desert for 40 years. Now, why is that here? I thought Moses wrote this. Moses didn't go into the land of Canaan. This is uh, an editor's remark. It's inspired by the word of God, probably written during the time of Joshua to look back at what had happened. Remember, this, this isn't being written in real time. This is written from the standpoint of a people about to enter the land of Canaan to remember who God is, what he's commanded them, what he's done, so that they would walk in his grace, walk by his commandments. And so this is a forward-looking, narratively uh, aspect of this story that says they're going to be eating this manna for 40 years. Well, they're eating it for 40 years because they're wandering in the desert, and they're wandering in the desert because they disobeyed the command of God. They didn't trust him before entering Canaan after they spied out the land as he told them to. <clears throat> now, this level of uh, disobedience by Israel is why Paul is so adamant to Christians in 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to bring in another connecting point from the rest of the Bible to this section here, and we're looking at 1 Corinthians 10 now. And so if you take a look at verse 6, this is what Paul says to the church about what happened when the people rebelled against God. It says this in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's, uh, they, instead of following the Lord's commands, they played with their idols. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them in, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Friends, hear these things and know that God is always, always, always displeased with the sins listed here. Idolatry, sexual immorality, grumbling. How many times do we find ourselves wrapped up in complaining about our circumstances instead of crying out to the Lord for help? What idols have you let slip into your lives? How much time is wasted, going, uh, giving our lives to things that pull us away from our duties so that we would merely eat, drink, and rise up and play, as Paul said. What do we learn from these Exodus stories, and how might these words from Paul about them help us? Well, the people of Israel were headed for rest, but along the way, they got caught up in idolatry of the worst sort. And if we look back at, at Exodus 16, remember, this is an idolizing of a revisionist history of their slavery in Egypt, even preferring death with full stomachs to freedom in, and, uh, freedom in and life in God. So I'd ask you, what is it that you idolize? What do you prefer to obeying the voice of the Lord? What idols do you think will give you rest? Where are you wandering from God's grace? I want to gently admonish you today by reminding you of Proverbs 21, 16. One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. That's a scary verse. Do you see idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling 
as things the Lord hates that lead to your death? Perhaps you could find uh, a way to answer this question that would maybe circumvent the truth. You know, if I were to ask you, are you given to those things? You know, maybe you on your own could say, well, you know, I've wrestled with idolatry or, you know, I've given into sexual immorality before, but I'm really trying hard to, and you may be telling the truth. But there's also a good chance that you don't see yourself as well as perhaps other people might see you. And so uh, let me give you an alternative to just answering the question on your own. Okay, so this is very helpful for application. Uh, What if instead of answering on your own, let's say you're married, you invite your spouse to answer those questions for you. Perhaps you're not married. Maybe you have close friends or a community group or your pastors or maybe your own parents uh, who could answer that for you. Are you given to these things? And their information to you is really, really helpful. I wonder what they would say. I wonder what they would say about each of us. And I would imagine that there's a fair number of us who would need to hear the answers that they provide. So let me encourage you, go get those answers. Those answers might sting badly. They might hurt deep down. But we go to the doctor to get the shot so that we won't get the disease. We have the painful surgery to remove the deadly tumor so that we don't die from it. We cut off the limb to save the life. Your sin will kill you if you don't kill it. And these sins listed here lead to death, spiritual death, separation from God eternally, where you are worthy of the condemnation that comes from that because of what you've done. In God's holy judgment, in his wrath, he punishes us for those things, and we deserve every bit of it. That's bad news. We're going to get to the good news here in just a second. But we have to turn back to Exodus 16 and take a look at these last seven verses this morning, which describe the Israelites facing a familiar problem. They have no water. They've come to Rephidim and have camped there, and there's no water to drink. Third time's the charm, right? We've got story one, story two, maybe this third time they'll get it. Wrong. The people, their complaint escalates to the point of Moses even fearing for his own life. And now listen to what God says. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you, this is verse 5, Exodus 17, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now this is what's most important here. The people test the Lord, and what does he do? He gives of himself. He gives of himself. If that's not clear from the text, I understand that, but we read the rest of the Bible to make clear the things that are less clear. How is it that the Lord gives of himself here at the rock at Horeb? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10, because Paul speaks of the rock which was struck being Christ Paul says this, look at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Now, why would Paul draw that conclusion? Paul says that the spiritual rock 
followed them. That is to say that there was a spiritual rock that accompanied them, provided for them, attended to their needs. And Paul is identifying Christ here with the Yahweh of Exodus 17, 15, I'm sorry, Exodus 17, verses 5 and 6. The Old Testament viewed God as their rock regularly. And this is really where that comes from. God is our rock. This is a reference back to Horeb and how God was the rock there. The context of Psalm 78, 35 indicates that clearly, that the people of Israel viewed God as their rock because of what happened in this story. And so Jesus speaks of himself then in the New Testament, providing living water to those who thirst for it, trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together to help you see how Christ is the rock. Now consider John 4. You remember it. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that he is the water of life, the living water, and that whoever drinks of this water that he provides will never thirst again, and it will be a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Now, how does he prove this? How does Jesus prove and verify that he can offer this living water? He does this by giving his own life, which is previewed at Horeb, in Exodus 17, when the rock was struck, Paul is saying that Christ was the rock, and he is the rock of our salvation, which was struck. Now, when Moses struck the rock at Horeb, what came from it? Water. But when Jesus, our rock, was struck on the cross, John 19.34 says that water and blood flowed from his side. Water came forth from him. John... Uh, that's in John 19, 34, if you want that reference. Now, the blood that came forth from Jesus showed that more than water was needed to bring life to the people. His blood, his very blood was required as a payment for all the sin that we have done, all the sexual immorality, all the grumbling, all the complaining, all the shame, all the idolatry. His blood covered it all for all of his people. Now, remember the stench? Rewind the clock a little back in the sermon. I said, this is how we're going to see how God deals with the stench that comes with sin. This, my friends, is exactly how Jesus takes away the stench. The stench reminds us of death, but Jesus became that for us. He endured the death that sin produces so that if we would trust him to fully save us, if we would listen to the voice of the Lord and obey him, turning from our sin and repenting, he would save us. And that stench is removed when you, when you repent of your sin and trust in the rock that was struck for your salvation. Moses' death couldn't cover any of the sins of the people of Israel. Moses couldn't enter the promised land because of his own sin. Moses couldn't bring the people into an eternal rest with God. And neither could his, uh, the one who followed him, Joshua, for that matter. For if the rest that Canaan provided was good enough, there'd be no need for Christ to come but there was a better rest. And that's what Hebrews 3 and 4 teaches. And if we had time, we'd dig into that a little bit more this morning. Let me encourage you to write that down and study it this week to dig into how Jesus is the true and better Moses. It'll help the flower blossom in your mind of what is going on with uh, Christ as it relates to these stories from Exodus. But because of Israel's sin, they had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness before entering Canaan. The church, even Covenant Life Church, is similar to Israel, enduring a period of wandering before we enter the promised land of an eternal rest. But whereas Israel wandered as a result of God's anger through the desert, awaiting a temporary rest, 
we wander through this world in God's grace as his people awaiting an eternal and spiritual rest. Christ has already entered the promised land for us and we are soon to follow. And we will never, ever have to ask the question of Exodus 17, 7, is the Lord among us or not? Because Christ answered that for us in his resurrection. And the promise that he gave was that he would never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you as his people. And so during the period of our own wandering through the desert, before we enter our eternal rest, how shall we live? Three points of application quickly, and then we'll close. First, these are simple bumper sticker phrases. You can write them down. Don't test the Lord. Trust the Lord. Do not test the Lord, but trust the Lord. Trusting is the opposite of grumbling. A trusting person responds by crying out to God in the wilderness. Don't test, trust. Number two, learn the purpose of the wilderness. Learn the purpose of the wilderness. Here are a few maxims about the wilderness for the Christian. Here's the first one. Enjoyment comes through obedience. Enjoyment comes through obedience. Maturity is the aim of difficulty. Entering God's rest means striving for it. I mean, that's, that's what the, the author of Hebrews argues for in verse four or chapter four, verse 11 of Hebrews. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We strive to enter God's rest. And we fight the sins of disobedience that the wilderness tempts us to. That's part of the striving. As we are... Uh, uh, striving for God's rest, we are rejecting grumbling, rejecting testing the Lord, rejecting idolatry and laziness and so on and so forth. And then here's the third bumper sticker. <clears throat> if God is with you, you are safe. If God is with you, you are safe. Even in death, even at the point of death, if the Lord is with you, you are safe. Tim Keller uh, passed away a few weeks ago. And two years ago, he said, if the resurrection is true, then everything is going to be all right. Even in death, if the Lord is with you, you are safe. And the promise is, death isn't the end. Christ rose from the dead, and he promises the same resurrection to all who trust in him and obey him. And that's available to each and every one of you today. Let the lessons of Exodus remind us to trust in the Lord at all times and to obey him at all times. That's how we enter the rest that he promises. Let's pray.